in the 11FS office in London for episode 129 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. But today it's a little bit different. We've, we've got a special show where we take a look back over 2019 and then get into our 2020 predictions. And of course, um, I am Simon Taylor and I'm joined remotely by the one and only uh, Mr. Mike Dudas from The Block Crypto. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing quite well on this rainy Monday. Thanks for having me. How is uh, how's the uh, rainy Monday treating you other than the rain? You're sort of uh, getting ready for all things festive and you're kind of married and, and through all of that? Indeed. So we have you know, two young kids. Uh, we put the Christmas tree up uh, yesterday uh, in Tribeca. Christmas trees, six feet tall, cost uh, almost $200. So that was a shock, but the kids loved it and you got to do what you got to do. All right. As, as we say, it is a bit of a different show today. Uh, Christmas trees and all, uh, tis the season. Um, so we're recording this one sort of mid-December, but I'm sure as you're listening to this, it's a little bit later than that. But, uh, you know, it's time for our bravest and best crypto and DLT predictions for 2020. Um, but before we get into those predictions, it's probably a good idea to look back at some of the 2019 predictions. These came from uh, Colin G. Platt and uh, myself. So, Mike, I'm wondering what you think of some of these. So uh, I'm going to read some out and you just tell me how, how you think we did so you get to be school teacher how's that sound that sounds great i enjoy that especially for colin g platt all right um so uh prediction number one was the crypto part of crypto uh becomes much more important than the asset or the currency part how do you feel about that one from me there so to the very deep insiders it certainly has uh the things that are being built you know talking about open finance and uh you know Bitcoin as a censorship-resistant store of value is as important as ever. Uh, but in terms of what the majority of you know, people on Earth who are paying attention to cryptocurrency and blockchain technology uh, are aware of, it's, it's actually not the case. Uh, the assets uh, and, the, and the currency part have become much more important. I don't think anybody could have predicted Facebook Libra uh, and the explosive you know, growth and interest of central bank digital currencies and, and China as a nation uh, potentially releasing one in 2020 when you guys made these predictions 12 months ago. So clearly the asset and currency part has been much, much more significant. Much more seen. I think uh, when I was looking through these earlier, I thought, yeah, Libra's really screwed me on that one, but bless them for for trying to do something awesome. So, Indeed. Um, the next one was um, DLT makes a comeback. How do, how do you feel about that? I think that one's spot on. Uh, many people aren't aware of it. It's work that's happening, you know, kind of in the, in the, in the shadows of corporate America and you know, corporations across the world. And, uh, you know, when, when you say DLT, distributed ledger technology, you know, China calls it blockchain. Uh, it's clear that it's beginning a, a massive comeback. It's, it's the prime, you know, one of the prime technology focuses of a country with 1.4 billion people. So you nailed that one. I'm going to say that one as a bullseye. Um, next one was institutions dip a toe in the water as infrastructure build-out hardens around. So what's not said here is around crypto and crypto assets. Was, yeah, you nailed it. Di I mean, they've dipped a toe, and that's about it. Bingo. Um, Alrighty. Uh, regulatory clarity comes at last. Can't help laughing at that one. Uh, I would say uh, regulatory clarity hasn't come, but regulatory guidance is starting to come out. Uh, in the U.S., it seems to be a strategy of selective regulation, so you're choosing specific cases to help to start to set precedents. 
Uh, regulatory clarity in, again, China has been a little bit all over the place, but it looks like it's settling again on you know blockchain, not crypto. And uh, across other jurisdictions, you sort of see companies playing hopscotch uh, amongst sort of favorable nations. So uh, I wouldn't say regulatory clarity has come at last, but certainly it's more clear than it was a year ago. This is going to be a five to 10 year process. That's uh, a long journey. And then this was my wild card. Um, and this is probably hard to measure because it's like new projects that are born go on to be household names in the next decade. So maybe when we're doing our uh, 2030 predictions, we'll come back to this one. I think you're going to be right on that. Uh, I do. I, I am a believer uh, in open finance. And I think some of the names uh, and the building blocks and the infrastructure that started to be built, you know, companies like Uniswap, BSF Protocol, Compound Finance, uh, Maker, at least one or two of those and probably others that I didn't mention uh, will be names that exist 10 years from now and are significant. That's a huge point. All right. Um, now we'll get to Collins. Um, and he's not here to defend himself, so I feel kind of mean. But um, shout out to Colin G. Platt, wherever you are near your field. We love you, man. Um, so uh, point number one was number go sideways, question mark? He's about right. It's uh, bumped around, you know, went up. And we're going to end the year, I think, a little bit up. Uh, actually, it looks like a lot up, but we started, I don't even remember. We were down at 3,500 last December, entered the year closer to 5,500. We're bumping around at 75. Let's just, we'll call it sideways. I think you got that one right. Uh, number two might require a little bit of explanation. Number two is the zombie marmot apocalypse. I assume it has something to do with Preston Byrne and marmots <laughs> yeah. and uh, making so Preston has. Preston has been saying for some years that there would be a great reckoning from the SEC and securities regulators against the ICO issuers. And it does appear at least that um, uh, EOS looked like they came to a settlement. Uh, it looks like uh, Telegram are in a, in a bit of a different position. The SEC has taken action against some of the major, major uh, token issuers. Unquestionably. And Stephen Pally, I won't you know speak for him, but he's uh, an advisor and an author for the block. And he certainly believes what you just said to be true. Plus, he believes that there's going to be significant additional regulatory action in 2020. So I think that Colin and Preston were spot on, uh, not quite the apocalypse, but uh, action, meaningful action started to happen. Oh, you're so sensible, Mike. Um, I think the next sensible point is- Sensible when I'm on a uh, podcast, once you yeah, get me off Twitter. Get a few beers in this guy and yeah. all changes. Um, <laughs> uh, the next one from Colin was uh, stable coins. They're dumb. People will realize that they're dumb, but not before giving them all their money. Yeah, I think that was dead wrong. I mean, Tether is continuing to fuel uh, the cryptocurrency uh, trading and speculation uh, economy. So none of this would be possible without that particular stablecoin. And uh, we've seen the emergence of other types of stablecoins uh, for, for different use cases and purposes, regulated ones. Uh, to support more fiat on ramps. So I think that it, it, we need to define the type of stablecoin we're talking about. Uh, those ones uh, that you know, facilitate this economy, the crypto economy, uh, are meaningful. I think that uh, the riskier ones, you know, MakerDAO, for example, Maker and, and DAI, which is a cryptocurrency-backed stablecoin, uh, and the algori algorithmically-backed ones, yeah, those 
probably are not good ideas. And, and you know, we've seen some failures this year. And I think that's what Colin meant uh, when he said this. And then he lastly, was great. <laughs> um, uh, his, his last prediction was security tokens. Another market realization that there will be likely issuing security is more than just filing some papers to issue a security. In other words, th- this stuff is hard and there's a lot of work that goes around securities. Absolutely. And uh, I know this firsthand because, frankly, you know, we raise equity capital and, and you know, convertible notes ourselves, and you know, we're a venture finance company. Uh, so you know, in doing diligence in the space, have looked ourselves at you know, potentially a security token offering. And uh, I would say that it's a long-term promising uh, area, and it's exciting you know, for different asset classes and whatnot. But the infrastructure, liquidity, you know, they're just not there today. Uh, and I think I know that if if you do uh, security token offerings and, and involve words like crypto, it, it makes you know traditional buyers of these assets uh, look at you a little bit quizzically. So yeah, I think it's going to take more time, doesn't it? It, it does. I, I, just as a, a slight sidebar, it's interesting to me that. Um, Companies like Carter or even a product like Stripe Atlas, you know, they're in this like solve a problem for startup spaces with how hard it is to manage your cap table, to manage things like drag tag rights, to manage uh, preferred options that um, VCs would get versus common stock, like all of that complex stuff. Uh, that that you see, you know, even in a in an early stage t- uh, term sheet that can just be really, really hard and you kind of got to learn as you're going. Like that gets way more complex when you're dealing with public securities or openly traded securities and so on. So this is um, this is an area which we're probably going to see a lot more, you know, uh, maybe convergence, do you think, between like that world of make start entrepreneurs' lives better and, um, and this world of security tokens? Unquestionably. Uh, and it's going to take years, as you said. And frankly, it might actually be or, or is likely to be a company like Carta that sees a problem that they can solve, you know, by using a, a security token structure. Uh, but we use all of those traditional fintech tools that you talked about, you know, Stripe to accept payments, Carta for our cap table, and they work just fine. That's what I mean. Uh, Alrighty, uh, let's get on to our 2020 predictions um, because uh, mine were shorter. I'm going to start with mine so that we can pull them apart and see how you feel we're going to do on these ones, Mike, and then we'll get to yours just after the ad break. So uh, settle in, settle down. It's time for those 2020 predictions. Um, first one for me was uh, crypto winter is going to be long and deep. Um, so we will see more M&A activity as business start, businesses start to close their doors. Uh, where are you at on this? Do you think the uh, crypto summer is coming? Has spring turned or um, is it going to be a a hard 2020? Personally, I think it's going to be a hard 2020. Uh, I agree with you that we have a number of firms. uh, If you look at really any specific crypto vertical, uh, more than more than we need. (laughs) And that's not to mention, you know, the outright scams. uh, And and so there's going to be a, a significant cleansing uh, that will continue. It's, it's already begun uh, through regulatory action, through uh, projects and companies running out of capital, uh, and that will continue. Uh, I don't personally uh, you know, predict prices, but I'm not optimistic that there's any significant driver uh, to increase cryptocurrency prices you know, over the next 12 months. Uh, until we see, for example, institutions doing more than dipping their toes, until we see people other, you know, outside of the ten to 20,000 uh, zealots participating in open finance, 
and we're just not seeing that. So I agree with you, crypto winter uh, will extend uh, significantly into 2020. And uh, there's also a ton of macro risk, which we can talk about during my section. Um, but more M&A activity, yeah, I mean, you're going to see a ton of aqua hires. Uh, Binance has started to do a number of those. Uh, rumors, basically, that all the exchanges are starting to do that, uh, and, and the deals have been done and are being negotiated. So I think you're going to hear a lot of deals announced from you know, the Coinbase's, Gemini's, Huobi's, Binance, et cetera. And what about uh, uh, like the likes of a Fidelity or the traditional incumbents or even a Square, right? Because both of those organizations have done uh, are looking at you know, Fidelity, are looking at institutional crypto custody and tokens management and lifecycle management um, and and kind of services there for, for for investors. And then you've got Square that's done a lot around the payment side. And and yeah, you know, we've seen them Square especially hire some really interesting folks for Square Crypto. Does does that extend and continue? In, in like the older finance world? Yeah, so uh, Fidelity and Square. I mean, you, you mentioned, in my mind, the two traditional companies that have most significantly gone all in on a crypto asset ecosystem. Uh, they've done it in different ways, right? Fidelity has built uh, more of an institutional infrastructure. Uh, I think in the longer run, they will begin, I don't think it'll be next year in any meaningful way, but they'll begin to introduce uh you know, cryptocurrencies to their customers. Uh, right now, it doesn't seem to be the focus. Square, on the other hand, I mean, they're touching millions of people. They have millions of folks who own cryptocurrency or have purchased it via Cash App. Uh, you know, very small amounts, but just that first taste to me is is really uh, meaningful. It's exciting, and uh, they're interestingly enough committed to Bitcoin. Uh, while they do research through a Square Crypto Group into other cryptocurrencies, um, the only product, uh, the only cryptocurrency they allow you to purchase is Bitcoin. And Jack's made it clear that that's going to continue to be the case. Uh, so they're making a big statement to what they think is the, uh, you know, the the crypto money, uh, and it's Bitcoin oh, for them. Sure. Yeah, interesting. Um, next prediction I had, so prediction number two for me was stable coins. And I'm saying that uh, Libra doesn't in fact launch in 2020, but it will start to look a lot more like e-money or something that institutions would find a lot more acceptable and governments would find more acceptable. Yeah. And when you say Libra doesn't launch, uh, I, I guess I you might have to qualify it. Like maybe they do a test or a pilot in yeah. some friendly jurisdiction, but you know, they're not going to launch in China, obviously. They're not going to launch uh, in the United States. They're not going to launch in the EU. So, and I would doubt in the UK. So, I mean, perhaps they do launch in, in some you know, secondary or tertiary countries. It doesn't seem like they're going to launch in India, by the way. So I, I agree. It's going to look more like e-money. And you know, people have, many people have speculated that that was the the grand plan. I don't believe it was, by the way. Uh, I, I really do think that they did want to, in good faith, launch a global cryptocurrency. I do actually believe in their uh, you know, banking the unbanked uh, thesis and, and beliefs, just knowing some of the people there for, for a number of years. But the the pushback and the fear from from you know, central bankers and financial regulators globally uh, was fearsome. And it did reveal uh, a lack of the level of planning that's needed when you want to launch a global uh, currency alternative. Uh, I, I think what's interesting is is initially the pushback was, oh, well, yeah, of course they're pushing back because we're Facebook. And it's like, yeah, sure, there's that. 
But I also think it's you haven't done the homework on the economics as well. And that's the stuff that Colin G. Platt has blogged about a bunch of times, which I think he, his blog post, uh, um, I think it was uh, Crypto for Bozos or Stablecoins for Bozos, something along those lines, is well worth a read because he outlines like every time the IMF has tried to do something like it or the euro dollar markets, all of the problems with those from an economic standpoint and the questions that Libra have not yet answered from an economic standpoint. And those were probably more scary to central bankers than you know, the political noise that was there around Facebook. So there were actually two fronts where I think people thought there was one front. Um, so it's going to be interesting to look back at this one in another Really good months. point. And I think strategically, in hindsight, if they'd done uh, this as a very slow roll, quiet launch versus, you know, hey, we've got all these big partners and a massive media push, uh, they probably would have had more room to operate and evolve. Indeed. Uh, Alrighty, next one for me. So prediction number three for 2020 is central bank digital currencies start to look a lot more like uh, digital cash than anything crypto. Um, I think this is slightly cheating because um, I think the the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, is already sort of heading in that direction. But the other thing I'm thinking here is if you look at what the Bank of England's already announced around the real-time gross settlement upgrade, you know, they've been talking for years about um, do they need to do account-to-account payments directly through central bank clearing? Um, and I guess uh, you know, even the, the Fed in the US has been talking for a long time about you know what payments infrastructure upgrades need to look like in the USA, and there was a paper about that this year. So I think the, the question now that central bankers wrestle with is, is there a digital equivalent of the leather wallet that you know looks like a, a non-custodial wallet for central bank? cash? Or are we talking about account-to-account payments? Or is there something in the middle? And I think China's the first to start to show its hand, but will we see others? Yeah. And so I'm with you completely. Uh, Quote-unquote digital cash is going to look very different uh, depending on the country, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the first implementations, uh, in fact, this very morning that you hear uh, in Shenzhen and and other regions of China that they're going to be piloting involve not only the government uh, and your bank, but also uh, your telecom. So, you know, I'm not that excited about a digital cash wallet uh, that like basically the three, uh, you know, entities that know the most about me sort of control and can track. Uh, That type of digital cash uh, is is terrifying and uh, it's obviously, you know, liberty inhibiting. Uh, it's going to look different, digital cash uh, and central bank digital currency and how it's tracked and privacy uh, in Europe. I'm, I'm very interested to see you know, France talked about having a you know, digital euro or, or you know, digital money next year. I can't wait to explore the designs of that uh, and you know, contra- compare and contrast uh, with what's happening in China. It's just going to be a very broad spectrum. And I think people will start to go back and look at Bitcoin and realize, hang on a minute, that was really smart. Like the elegance of Bitcoin really starts to stand out. And you start to think about, you know, what are the layers of the stack for global digital money? Because the there's this interesting geopolitical conversation of the dollarization of the world versus, you know, what are the actors' goals? If I'm sitting in China, I would, you know, dollarization doesn't help me because um, I'm my one belt, one road initiative, if I'm going to project power and if I'm going to um, slowly you know, build, look after my own economic interests, the dollar doesn't help me do that. Whereas if I'm in the US, the dollar absolutely does. If I'm Europe, the dollar doesn't really help me, but it doesn't hinder me. Um, so I'm in a bit of a different position, but privacy really matters. So 
All of those actors have different. Uh, it's always uh, Ian Grigg talks about the "Who are you and what do you want to achieve?" question is critical to try and uh, uh, examine any of the positions of either China, Europe, or, or the US and, and other actors. So we'll we'll see how that one starts to play out. Alrighty, um, fourth one for me was uh, DLT networks, such as um, what Six are doing uh, with uh, with their uh, kind of vertical integration, utility settlement coin, HQLEX, become significant projects that big investment banks during their 2021 planning cycle start to really look at. So um, the assumption being these are projects that are out there that have been known, that have been doing pilots uh, for some time, that have been doing real transactions for some time, and that as people look at 2021, they're going to go, well, hang on a minute, we now need to upgrade to this. If not in 21, then 22. So this is a risky one for me. I'm not sure. I think I might be a couple of years too early, um, but but I do think these guys have been earning their stripes for quite some time. Yeah, so you're the expert on this one, uh, and I believe, I mean, banks always take a couple years more than you expect, just, I mean, honestly, to do anything, unless they're forced by uh, a startup that's doing something, and and really an emergent startup, like a significantly sized fintech company that's doing something better than them. Uh, I would just love to know what the impetus is uh, for this to happen in 12 months and, and, you know, what are the significant cost savings uh, or, you know, what is the significant market share opportunity that this opens up? Yeah, so I think for me, the the big one is the genie's out of the bottle on true DVP. Um, and the big thing holding that back is that in under European law, and I think US law, um, a centralized securities depository is required, um, which means somebody has to hold your collateral. That means your cost of capital in your capital isn't being put to best use. And so from a liquidity perspective, the banks are like, well, if I could do true DVP, uh, I could be putting that capital to work elsewhere on my balance sheet, and, and I'd be much more capital efficient. Uh, And so, you know, that's kind of like banks are always going to want that, but maybe they introduce risk in the process. Um, But would would people start to, if we see movement on that front, then everything else moves. Um, And the hard yards being done really are in the the law offices and the compliance side of the house rather than the technology side of the house. So I think this one's going to be an interesting one to watch. Absolutely. The way you just said it, I'm, I'm sold that this is a huge priority. And uh, there you go. Um, and lastly, I'm uh, throwing this is my wild card for the year. Backed becomes a bit of a sleeper hit. Um, so as we know, Backed launched uh, a, a couple of months ago, um, and of course, uh, from its pe- the ICE, who are the parent of the parent of the New York Stock Exchange, their big breakthrough is doing physical delivery rather than cash delivery of, of uh, options and futures contracts on Bitcoin, um, and I think Ethereum as well. I might be wrong. Uh, that to me strikes me as something that especially the emerging sort of market makers, uh, low-end hedge funds, single-family offices are going to want more and more exposure to uh, to hedge um, price volatility. Um, so I just think that their volumes are going to slowly, steadily creep up and we'll look back at the end of 2020 and go, like, they're a significant player now and they, they we, everybody poo-pooed them when they came out. That's just a gut feel thing, nothing more than that. Yeah, so the team here, I would... Uh argue that yeah they they think you're right on that we we cover backed quite a bit uh they actually just came out today with their 2020 product roadmap and it's pretty interesting you know it involves also geographic expansion uh into asia they are a formidable company uh, even with their ceo moving into the u.s senate and uh yeah i i would expect them to to be a really meaningful company in this space particularly uh you know in the sort of back half of the year 
for me, the future of finance is truly digital and truly global. Uh, Historically, what we've done is we've digitized paper processes. And you see this with the small efficiency gains when we take that paper process and we make it a really nice web form or we make it into a really nice PDF. And then you never get to the real promise of truly global and truly digital. Now, truly global is hard because you have to harmonize different global policy positions. And like I said, the who are you and what do you want to achieve challenge makes that difficult. Um, But the... uh, and the dollarization of the world challenge makes that really difficult. Um, but the promise of something like uh, uh, stable coins and uh, the promise of uh, truly digital assets is that we could have some interoperability across global financial markets. And whether it's Europe-US corridors or Europe-Asia corridors, um, that interoperability on a shared set of standards could get really interesting when we start to see the convergence of the world of Bitcoin and the world of uh, of DLT. So let's, yeah. let's keep watching that one. That I mean, look, it, it exists me tremendously. It's why I'm in this space, having worked uh, for a number of years at, at products that were U.S. only and, and just seeing the hurdles for, for Braintree and for Venmo and, and even for Google Wallet to expand beyond uh, you know the national confines of the U.S. It, it was taking years. So yeah, I, I love that promise and it's why I'm here. Alrighty, um, we'll get to an ad read and then we'll get to your predictions, Mike. So uh, uh, this episode is brought to you by R3, developed by R3. Corda is known for its enterprise-grade security, privacy, uh, scalability, and interoperability. It has lots of abilities, quite like a superhero. And because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any type or size in any industry. Uh, with Corda, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain. The power. A free trial of Corda Enterprise is now available at r3.com. Head over to check it out now. All right, we're on to your predictions, Mike. Are you ready? Are you feeling this? I'm excited. All right, do you want to read out your first one? Yeah, Bitcoin continues to extend its dominance, uh, meaning its share of the overall cryptocurrency market cap. Uh, it uh, did it has extended its dominance at somewhere in the you know, two thirds, sixty seven percent range uh, as of today, when I'm speaking. And you know, the reason I believe that is it's uh, you know look it's liquidity. Uh, it is the re- reserve asset of the cryptocurrency ecosystem. It's the asset that you know it's available on Square, for example. You know Cash App. It's the one that people are aware of. They recognize. They understand, and they universally. Uh, the folks who are into cryptocurrency, uh, near universally, even the ones who don't work on Bitcoin, you know, believe in its value, uh, and it's you know ten plus years now, you know, unimpeachable you know, record of of block creation, so uh, and transaction validation, and uh, you know we have the halving next year, which is obviously when the block reward. Um, you know, decreases by half, which will be really interesting. Historically, that's led to price increase to you know offset um, you know the decrease in the amount of Bitcoin block reward that miners get. So you know I think you know, the price of Bitcoin is likely to increase relative to other projects. I don't see many other new projects being introduced that will sort of gain significant market share. Uh, that ship has really sailed. And, uh, you know, I expect a number of the sort of long tail coins and cryptocurrencies and projects to evaporate. So I'm pretty confident that Bitcoin will extend its dominance in 2020. It's interesting that... uh 
a few years ago, everybody was trying to launch a better Bitcoin, and then here we are, and it, it, it's still there doing its thing. In spite, everybody has an issue with it. Everybody had a problem with it, but it seems to have just marched forward and trundled on through. And now even the regulators kind of don't mind it so much. They're much more concerned about things like Libra and stable coins and what's that other central bank doing. Um, that seems to be much more the issue, and it's it's kind of a it's a quiet testament to to its stability and its longevity that it's it's kind of made it there uh, and I guess it's just uh, does it need to be usable if it can be um, held and traded uh, inside of a 401k um, interesting one to think about what was number two for you so I am excited about and a believer in ethereum open finance uh, we have a fantastic research analyst Mateo Leibowitz uh, here at the block, who who writes about it quite a bit, uh, and effectively, you know, it, it's it's a quote unquote uh, decentralized financial ecosystem, um, and you know, involving all of the normal things like you know, payments, saving, uh, lending, etc. And you know, I expect that to grow in 2020. Uh, it can only it, it can really do nothing but grow uh, in the sense that it's fairly small today in terms of the number of participants and, and the amount of money uh, at work in open finance. That being said, there are you know a significant number of developers who are moving into the Ethereum ecosystem who continue to, uh, and we're actually doing research on this uh, as I speak, and a significant of new companies and money being put into these ecosystem, uh, this ecosystem. You know, you've seen Compound raise 25 million, SET raise a significant amount. There are a couple financings that we'll be reporting on over the rest of this month and next month in the space. That being said, so you're gonna have a ton of folks working to build this open finance um, ecosystem and this sort of alternative, I don't wanna call it parallel, but alternative financial system on top of Ethereum, okay? Uh, and it will make progress. I don't know where that ends up in 10 years. I just know that you're going to see more building blocks put together and more money put into it and more development work put towards it next year. That being said, you know, the rest of uh, the, the foundational part of this entire system, Ethereum itself will be undergoing really significant uh, transition. Obviously a transition to proof of stake that's you know, planned for next year from proof of work. Uh, but that has faced significant delays historically. And, uh, you know, so you have to be, you know, there's a tremendous amount of risk, obviously, if you're building an open financial system on top of a protocol uh, that will be undergoing a fundamental migration uh, in, the ter in terms of the way that, you know, transactions are you know, verified and validated and the way the blockchain works. So uh, people would be working on it. Tons of <laughs> tons of risk uh, underlying. It's going to be a really chaotic and noisy year. But again, I expect uh, you know, progress uh, in a good way. Untied. I think in a world of um, almost negative interest rates and almost no yield, I think anything um, that has more yield uh, is is interesting to an investor community. But there's an interesting question about, does it have more yield because it's a thinly traded asset, i.e. it's so small, so it has yield. Um, it's only for hobbyists, so it has yield. If it were to have any real liquidity, it would be in the same market as everybody else, or is there something fundamentally different? Because it makes me think of peer-to-peer um, -peer lending. Um, so the peer-to-peer 
lending market, you know, uh, Funding Circle, Lending Club, like Zopa, all those guys, you know, post-financial crisis, they were all the rage. They'd changed lending. They'd, they'd changed the economics. And actually, now you look at them. Uh, Zopa just applied for a banking license because it turns out it's a much cheaper way to fund your lending and your balance sheet uh, and uh, and your cost, your cost of funds go down if you can take retail deposits because you can't really compete with zero-cost um, liquidity uh, from financial markets. So if I'm having to... This is basically peer-to-peer lending, but on a different tech platform. So who benefits? Because it's probably not mature Western financial markets. Um, and where's the risk? Is the risk here or is the risk somewhere else? Is a new type of lending? Is it lending in esports? Is it lending in new sectors? Is it lending in digital economies? I think it's one of those where we might need to invent a new market for open finance to really um, make sense. Because the world of finance sort of... In, in a neg- negative interest rate or a near zero interest rate environment, like lending's never been cheaper. That's kind of not the problem. The problem is that there's nobody offering uh, yield on savings. So, like, is how do we fix that without fixing the economy? Like, it doesn't feel like a tech problem to me. Um, that this one uh, is going to be a big one. I don't know that. Um, uh, yeah, open finance as a movement might move, but I just don't know how it solves the problem it's set out to solve, uh, or if it's learned the lessons of peer-to-peer lending and, and who its target audience is. I like that as a sort of precise counter uh, to mine. I actually think what you said will 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 age well. Uh, in fact, you know the products that are being built and the incentives and, and sort of the returns and, and the way they're collateralized uh, might not you know be constructed for the people who would ultimately theoretically you know benefit from a uh, censorship resistant financial open ecosystem, right? So. Engineer nerds don't understand the problem that well. Um, and the, the, uh, there's two things you need to do. One is write code, but the other one is talk to customers. And it feels like in the whole crypto space, half of the problem is nobody's talking to the people who could be the eventual customers. Um, all right, I get it. do you want to go to your third prediction? Yeah, so it increasingly seems, despite a lot of skepticism from you know, certain pundits, that China will actually release its digital one I uh, hope I pronounced that correctly, Yuan, broadly, uh, you know, DCEP in uh, 2020. And, uh, you know, after doing a, a significant set of pilots here uh, over the next couple quarters, uh, that's part of the prediction. Uh, could be wrong. Yeah, you know, maybe it's 2021. But it will, you know, in the long run, foster just, and this is an easy one, just an incredible, incredible shift in uh, financial privacy. So uh, if your telecom, your bank, and your government are all involved in, in giving you the digital wallet uh, and provisioning, you know, your cash to you in an entirely traceable way, uh, I mean, man, that's dystopia. It's going to be really, really uh, limiting and, and terrifying. And, uh, you know, I think, we're going to see, um, you know, human rights, uh, uh, human rights stories coming out of China uh, that are going to be staggering uh, in terms of, you know, having people financially excluded uh, for things that they do in other parts of their lives uh, and for how they spend their money. And uh, I don't know how that's going to get reported. 
that's the really challenging thing is it's hard. It's increasingly challenging you know, to get folks I, in the ground. I, and there's nuance here that I think is important. So I, I think about things that could be financially inclusive, like different ways of doing credit scoring that could also be uh, unfair to customers. So the classic example is I might be able to give you a way better price on your health insurance if I can uh, look at your Fitbit. And some people would be like, great, give me a better health insurance. And other people are like, well, no, hang on, that's that's my privacy. Like, why do you want that data? So there's there's a fine line there between like things that are in the your interest and not and how much data are you willing to give up. And this is a, a conversation broadly. And I think different people and different countries have different expectations and perception of that and things that may feel normal to a lot of, granted, not all Chinese citizens, um, can be seen perceived negatively in the West. That's not poo-pooing, however, serious and material concerns with what could be um, very uh, kind of uh, grave privacy violations. The the tidbit in here for me is that commercial banks would first obtain the currency from the People's Bank of China by depositing a renminbi reserve. So this is like almost a secondary currency world. Um, I, I, I go make a deposit at the central bank and then I get these other tokens and these tokens move around from digital wallets. That's a model that could make sense. Yeah, the the underlying you know central bank model actually to your point does make sense to me uh, or could make sense uh, it's more about again you know what happens after that point you know one side yeah. then as the uh, as the business or individual you know deposit my my check and am issued these tokens uh, in my digital wallet. Well, this is why people need to uh, make sure they stay subscribed to Blockchain Insider and get themselves a, a subscription to the block because it's only going to be the only way to follow this stuff, I'm sure. Uh, all right, uh, next uh, next prediction for you is all about Bitcoin. Yeah, so, and, and because, so we're, I believe, uh, let's just call the prediction, we're headed for some, some you know, international macroeconomic and political chaos. Uh, the 2020 election is going to be messy uh, in the United States. Uh, you know, we have more than 4 billion people under authoritar- authoritarian regimes uh, internationally. Uh, to date, it's been a lot more sort of talk about hey, the world is going to hell and there's all these uh, massive, you know, skirmishes. Uh, you know, Hong Kong being cited very often, um, but it hasn't really been reflected, certainly in the U.S. economy, um, which is still going gangbusters. I personally expect that to change and, and, and for things to start to slow down. Um, you know, equities are, are at a pretty you know, piggish level reg- relative to earnings and, uh, and have been for a long time. Uh, the the argument I would make, uh, you know, people always say Bitcoin is like a risk on a- asset um, and that, you know, people will flee Bitcoin as soon as they flee other you know, risk on assets. Like, uh, and Ryan Todd and our team has done a lot of work around this, much more thoughtful than any of my 2020 quip predictions. But I actually think that the price of Bitcoin will hold strong in the face of, you know, macroeconomic and geopolitical um, Risks. Hey, it may dip very quickly, but I I expect Bitcoin to kind of end 2020 if there is this sort of macroeconomic and political chaos that I expect, uh, you know, at the same level or higher than it is today. and I think that's really fair. I think we, we sort of covered this in one of the earlier ones about uh, Bitcoin extending its dominance. Um, and it's sort of linked to your next one as well. Yeah, so 
people are waking up and it ties to mining as well. So people are waking up. The next one is just that more financial technology and, and perhaps, you know, banks in certain areas, big banks in the UK or the US will actually make a cryptocurrency available to customers in some form uh, in 2020 for purchase and, and trading. You know, in the US, whether it's Schwab, I doubt it, but maybe an E-Trade, uh, you know, I don't actually know all of the, all of the, the places and brokerages in the UK, but uh, more people are becoming more aware of cryptocurrency. Uh, and as you, as that happens, you know, you, you, you sort of get, well, one, there's, there's uh, more liquidity. There is, you know, depth of interest to hold the price. But the other thing that we talked about is just the pressure on miners uh, in terms of, you know, the halvening. And, uh, and so historically that has led to an increase in price that I think will offset the risk off, uh, the risk-off trend. Interesting. It, 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 there's, there's some macro themes here that are, that are really sort of compelling and converging. I think that um, big tech and or big finance looking at Bitcoin seriously is is macro and, and really interesting one to watch. By the way, I the last economics course that I took was uh, in 2001 when I graduated from college. So I uh, unfortunately, you know, I, I'm sort of winging it on that one. Dude, welcome to my life. I left school at 16, which is probably obvious to every listener that has ever listened to this podcast. So you're I'm doing well, you. my friend. Um, <laughs> uh, already. Um, the next one, number six for you, was about blockchain technology. Yeah, so I'm excited about, and, and you know, saying blockchain technology could mean seven zillion things. All right, but the bottom line is uh, we're starting to see uh, some really significant business processes uh, that are made you know, more efficient or significant costs or time uh, are saved by you know, putting processes onto a blockchain that used to involve you know, paper records and you know, greater inaccuracies and time sending things back and forth. An example of this that we covered that Ryan Todd of the block covered recently uh, is Figure, which is you know, focused on home equity lines of credit. Uh, it's, it's Mike Cagney's new company. He's the founder of SoFi. Uh, it's growing really rapidly. You know, just raised at a you know, nosebleed valuation of $1.2 billion, led by Morgan Creek Capital. I know the, the valuation is, is, is significantly high. But uh, you know, Ryan dove pretty deep and believes that the cost savings after looking at you know, the home equity line of credit process, historically and traditionally, uh, that there really could be 100 plus you know, basis points of savings uh, by utilizing this provenance blockchain uh, that figure utilizes. So yeah, that's just one example. Uh, Microsoft, Azure, AWS, and others uh, you know, making sort of blockchain plug and play in the cloud, I think will encourage a lot more folks to consider it, think about it, be sold it pretty aggressively uh, by their, their reps. And, uh, and I think that will lead to you know, more blockchain adoption. So you know, I, think it's, I think we're going to move beyond the pilot stage. And then you know, it's, it's, it seems like 2019 has been the year of like supply chain and, and retail usage you know, from Walmart to you know, tuna to oranges um, and jewelry. And, and there have been some real ones. Uh, and I think we're moving towards... You know, financial services now, uh, you know, we mentioned figure. There's a number of other uh, asset classes that figure and other companies believe can be improved uh, by using blockchain technology. Uh, we also know, and this is the one that's going to be really interesting, but I do expect, you know, a Visa, a PayPal, 
one of these major companies that hasn't done anything of significance uh, utilizing blockchain technology today, but we know are hiring people, you know, via public listings, et cetera, uh, on their websites, will announce, you know, something that will kind of rock our worlds. So there's um, Visa have been talking about B2B Connect for quite some time. This is um, business-to-business payments, which goes squarely, squarely into the world of Swift. Uh, Swift really are the place for, for uh, B2B payments, but that goes through the correspondent banking network, which has all of its challenges. Now, Swift would talk a good game about uh, the uh, Global Payments Initiative, GPI, and its ability to move near real-time payments. But Visa are out there selling something very, very different. And uh, for corporate treasurers or for big companies to move money to their suppliers or vice versa to to collect money from their suppliers, still really painful. So a network that allows them to do that with a brand on it like Visa or PayPal um, could be the next big frontier in payments. And a lot of these are being blockchain based by default. how much of that is using uh, you know, a crypto with a capital C that looks like a, a crypto asset versus using DLT for to solve some of the reconciliation and cryptography challenge? That's a different point, but the, it's still in there and it's still, um, I, st- I think, an important point. To, yeah, to and it's, that's why I categorize this as a blockchain initiative, uh, which, yeah, when I say that, I typically mean what what banks and financial institutions, traditional financial institutions call distributed ledger technology. So I think as Cambridge Judge Business School put it, blockchain is an excuse. It's got the word blockchain on it, but there's like seven or eight different technologies underneath the hood. Um, maybe nobody's involved in the uh, process of forming consensus, but actually there's still um, some kind of basic uh, shared secret token crypto. Maybe there's uh, some other model of coming to agreement. Maybe there's a workflow that sits around it. Maybe there's a one-way hash function. You know, there'll be bits and pieces that kind of already existed put together in a new way. Um, And blockchain was the excuse to do something and rethink the process and workflow across a number of actors. And I think that in itself uh, is worthwhile. It may not be the revolution that you were hoping for, but it's really, really valuable. And uh, it's kind of like in the tech world, uh, enterprise versus consumer. Like everybody gets excited about consumer tech, but enterprise tech has been an absolutely massive area of growth. And uh, it's often not as sexy, but if you you ignore it at your peril. Alrighty, uh, your last prediction for 2020. It's not going to be the year of tokenization. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is I just I don't think the infrastructure is in place. Uh, you know, the I don't think the you know, legal frameworks are in place. Uh, I don't think the demand and desire is in place. Uh, and, and, you know, there's just no liquidity uh, that seems to be materializing around anything that's, you know, any tokenized assets uh, to date, you know, outside of traditional cryptocurrencies. And and even within those, you know, only a handful have real liquidity. Uh, I don't see that changing in the coming year. So I would uh, highly advise any uh, company that's reliant on a, you know, tokenized security thesis uh, to go and raise a big bunch of money uh, to get through the next 12 months, which are going to go slow. <laughs> it's it, it's tokenization winter is coming by the sounds of it. What was the name of the company from the guy who founded SoFi called? Uh, figure. Figure. So if somebody like Figure is creating, um, I guess, uh, the 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 equity line, uh, sorry, the the equity backed uh, kind of lending um, and releasing some equity from, from from what I assume is a mortgage from a house, then. As doing that, are they creating that new uh, that new kind of release? Are they digitizing that? Are they creating yeah, a token to they, represent that? Yeah, now, they are. 
and then it gets released and, and basically gets recorded on that blockchain and they have a, you know, a corresponding lender uh, effectively who then releases the funds. Yep. Yeah, so that whole space could be really interesting because do they do that and try and own it as a captive market? Do they try and be the winner-take-all platform or not? So winner-take-all platform economics versus crypto economics should be an interesting one to watch play out. Absolutely. All righty. Well, that's it for the predictions. Um, what do you think uh, the mood's going to be like? Are you excited for 2020? Yeah. So from a you know, mood perspective, 2019, it's, it's been a, uh, a, a contentious one and, and, again, very kind of tribal. I, I, I expect the mood to be much more professional and, and grown up in 2020. I really do. Uh, and it feels like that is because, you know, you have – sort of a brain drain continuing. You know, I wouldn't say it's continuing at the pace of early 2017, but you have really fantastic people. Again, we'll just mention Mike Cagney who's getting a lot of free press on this podcast, but <laughs> you know, moving from you know, traditional uh, you know, fintech into uh, the blockchain space. So I believe you know, that professionalization, real use cases, uh, give us something to talk about. Uh, additionally, you know, all of the government action around central bank digital currencies. There's just a bigger world of things to talk about. Uh, and I believe that the mood will be much more curious generally than, hey, I know it all. Uh, I feel like there's been a lot of I know it all uh, and I don't need to learn about anything else amongst many uh, cryptocurrency insiders over the past 12 to 18 months. And I've certainly at times been guilty of it myself. Uh, but I really do sense a growing curiosity. It's being reflected uh, to, to you know, toot our own horn in, in our increased member numbers um, and people who are paying us for our deeper information, the conversations they're having with us, the events they're coming to. You're seeing a lot of the kind of um, janky, shysty, you know, conferences sort of lose uh, lose their momentum, and you see a lot more serious events happening. So I, I'm excited. I think there's going to be an elevated mood and an elevated discourse next year. Here, here, and, and I think on crypto Twitter, we're seeing the trolls go out with the tide. Um, that uh, you know, that the sort of uh, the pump and dump is getting harder to do. Um, the the shit coins are largely disappearing. Um, the liquidity for that end has kind of disappeared and dried up, and the the regulators have been more active. So the combination of all of those things hopefully allows us to roll our sleeves up and get on with the real job of making truly global, truly digital kind of financial services. That's uh, I think a lot more fair and transparent, which is the goal, man. I'm jazzed. I'm jazzed. It's gonna, I think it's going to be a really fun year, much more fun than 2019 in crypto. And I've had a good time in 2019. Yeah. I mean, the only way is up, as, as one song once said in 1997. Um, all uh, Just to remind you listeners, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services and change the very fabric of financial services. So if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider Every single Thursday, the subscribe button is right there. Um, and if you're already subscribed, why don't you throw us a review? Uh, we really hope you enjoyed the 2019 look back um, and the 2020 uh, predictions. We hope it's twice as nice. Uh, Mike, where can people find out more about you? Absolutely. So personally, folks can find me at at mdudas, M-D-U-D-A-S on Twitter. Uh but more importantly, they can learn about blockchain and cryptocurrency from our amazing research uh, and journalism team at www.theblock, 
theblockcrypto.com. Once again, www.theblockcrypto.com. Alrighty. Um, and as for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter, uh, or you can email me directly, Simon at 11FS.com. Uh, a big thank you to Mike for being on, and a big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider both next week and throughout 2020. Uh, goodbye for now. <laughs>